Cashiers are everywhere, at the grocery store, behind the counter at our coffee shops, in gas stations and on the floor of your favorite department store, ringing up items and making small talk. But Silicon Valley invested some $188 million last year on a technology that threatens to make those cashiers, as well as administrative assistants and other top job titles, obsolete. We're talking about the automation of work and whether or not frontline employees should be worried that the robots are taking over. This is Work in Progress. Keeping an American business alive, it's just not as easy anymore. I watch too much go wrong. There are not a lot of choices. I don't want to stand in line. I'd much rather just take what I want and go. It certainly is a different America. There's opportunities here that are untapped. You have to go get them. I'm just hoping that something will eventually crop up and get my life started. Welcome to Work in Progress, a LinkedIn podcast on the future of the world of work. I'm your host, senior editor Caroline Fairchild, covering tech and startups for LinkedIn. And I'm LinkedIn managing editor Chip Cutter. I'm spending this year on the road talking to people about what it means to earn a living now. Chip, I spend most of my day talking to venture capitalists and startup founders, and what I cannot seem to get through a coffee meeting right now without talking about is chatbots and automation. I talked to one investor recently who said Silicon Valley has, quote, bot fever right now. Everyone wants to back this technology. But this is a trend that has the potential to replace some of the work done by administrative assistants, order takers, customer service reps, and cashiers. So if automation is going to change these jobs, making investors rich in the process, how do workers on the front lines feel, the ones who really have the most to lose? I traveled to Ohio to find out. I spoke with Robin Biebout, the store manager and woman behind the counter of the BP Mini Mart in the working class city of East Liverpool. There you go, doll. Okay. You have a fabulous day, honey. She's worked in home health care, telemarketing, and as a shift leader at McDonald's but she keeps coming back to gas stations because she likes the people. I asked her what she thought of AI and the push to automate jobs like hers. I watch too much go wrong with my equipment on a daily basis. I mean, customers coming in and say, your pump won't work out there. I'm trying, you know? So, I mean, you got to have that human go out there, you know? And no, it won't survive without it. You know, you got to have human interaction. Have to. But you talk to workers and many say they don't believe it. They've seen those surveys, but they say the rest of the world doesn't understand their jobs, that the human contact here is just too essential. That perspective is common, even in Seattle, where Amazon, the leader in this push to automate retail, is already testing a store without cashiers. I talked to Emily Schwichtenberg, a 23-year-old recent chemical engineering graduate who works at a Safeway grocery near Seattle. She said conversations about AI had never come up on the store floor. I think cashiers will be here forever. Now we're, we're pretty confident that we have job security and <laughs> we'll be okay. Wait a minute. Did she just say that cashiers will be here forever? That's exactly what she said. And she's someone who has a sciences background. She understands technology. But she says there's something about her job that others are missing and that automation just won't be able to replace. She just doesn't buy it. That's the other story I feel like I keep reading. Studies have shown that when you ask people how automation will impact their jobs, they say it will impact everyone but them. I know our guest this week, Phil Libin, is going to bring so much to this conversation. A managing director at General Catalyst Partners and the founder and former CEO of Evernote, Libin is bullish on the potential of voice being the next big thing in tech. 
He's already invested in a few chatbot startups and thinks it's going to revolutionize the way we interact in the world throughout the next several years. Phil, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. I remember when we first met about a year and a half ago at Ritual Coffee Roasters in the Mission. I was probably the least cool person there. Second least cool person. (laughs) You couldn't stop talking to me about chatbots. And this was really before what I would say we are in like Silicon Valley chatbot craze mode now, where it seems to be anything that every investor is talking about. When did you first see the potential in the technology and why? I guess a few years ago, this, like with most of my kind of life thoughts, they really started somewhere in Star Wars. Um, And I remember as a kid uh, watching, you know, the first Star Wars trilogy and just being fascinated by uh, this idea that the characters there, like they just sort of had conversations with the technology. They just kind of talked to the droids and then stuff happened. They didn't like poke around at interfaces very much. Uh, And that just kind of lodged itself into my brain. And I remember screwing out with like voice activated uh, programs in the 80s, like with my Atari computer. And just in the past couple of years, it it started to feel like technology was getting to a point where that might be possible, where you could interact with technology in a very conversational way. Was there a particular moment where you were like, okay, this is no longer in the Star Wars era. This is something that is going to be the future soon. Yeah. um, I had a very specific experience. It was a couple of years ago, probably about I've been here for about two years. Yeah, it's probably about about two years ago. I was in my kitchen. I was and I was uh, washing dishes, and I was playing this uh, with this Alexa skill at the same time. So it was one of the earliest Alexa skills that you can get. And it was um, it's called like Word Master or something. And it's just a silly little game that you can play with 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 Alexa, where you say a word, and then she says a word that starts with the last letter of your word, and then you have to like say a word that starts with the last letter of her word. And the score is just how many letters your words are. So you're always trying to think of the longest possible word you can think of that starts with the last letter of the word that she said. And obviously, like, she could crush you because she's a computer. She knows every word, but she's, like, programmed to, like, not defeat you that badly. And, you know, and and she just, like, keeps score. And occasionally she says, like, you know, you've got 211 points and I've got, you know, 8,248 points. And it's a cool casual experience. And so I was washing dishes and I just remember, like, the sensation of, you know, my hands were wet and kind of soapy and... I was just kind of talking to Alexa over my shoulder. I wasn't really looking at anything in particular. I just realized all of a sudden that like this interaction is something unlike any other interaction with technology that I've ever had. Like I've never like used a computer without really actively paying attention to it kind of ambiently while doing something else in a very natural way. And it was just cool. And all of a sudden like things kind of snapped into focus for me and I felt, yeah, I think like, I think I know where this is going. Let's fast forward after the hand washing and the wet hands. We have roughly 4 million Americans working as either secretaries or administrative assistants Mm -hmm. and 3.5 million working as cashiers. Right. What are the technologies that you see replacing these human jobs? This is a really deep question. And um, I've actually changed my thinking about this significantly just in the past few months. Um, I really have to say like after the election, my, my thinking about automation has, has really has really shifted a little bit. Not so much in regard to bots, because I think the, the real thing here is probably robots, like actual physical like robots that are going to be replacing, um, well, robots are physical things, so like kiosks that are going to replace cashiers at McDonald's. You know, McDonald's is already doing this like massive test with, you know, kiosks and, uh, uh, you know, vending machines for Big Macs or whatever. I used to be much more enthusiastic about using technology to do a better job than people could on various like unskilled or semi-skilled jobs. 
And I always understood, of course, that like, well, what are, what are we going to do with these people? Like these people need to have an income and they need to have meaning in their lives. But before I was always like kind of comfortable in saying, well, that's not like somebody needs to figure that out. But like, I'm like, my job is to figure out how to make the, how to use the technology to make this better. And then like other people's jobs is to then figure out how these people make money because, you know, that's why we have a government, right? And I think now I'm just being a little bit less sure that anyone else is figuring it out. So I'm thinking like, well, maybe it's actually all needs to be figured out together. So like maybe the same people who are deciding the technology and figuring out the technology also inherently in part of that need to figure out the other half, which is, well, what happens with the people? Right. And as government investors are trying to figure this out, so are the workers on the ground. Mm -hmm. Chip, you recently spoke to a cashier in Chicago who might have some sort of interesting perspective on this. Is that right? That's right. So I talked with Barrett Goldflies. He's a 26-year-old cashier. Uh, He works at the grocery chain Mariana's. I asked him if he had ever worried about taking his job or even dramatically changing it. And he had a pretty quick answer. So there always is going to be a place for a human in retail. And also, I think that with some people, they're just rather prefer a human element to their day. I asked him if the conversations had even come up. And he said that his peers weren't even talking about this. They had more immediate concerns about whether their hours were going to be cut or whether a new store policy would impact how they do their work. And he got really specific about why he did not think his job was at risk. Customers are demanding and they have they're very specific and they just have their quirks that computers and machines are at this point unable to process with. There's that this and while they while they can do the job, they have to also have to have deal with the customers and their specific group jobs and their specific um demands, needs, wants, Michigas, chutzpah, all of that. And he said that, for instance, packing bags, that he would help elderly customers make sure that they didn't have too heavy of bags. And he felt that that was something that a machine wouldn't be able to do. These are conversations that in my you know, talks with a number of cashiers, they said they just aren't having right now. Where we know, though, that kiosks and other technology is out there that threatens to really change their jobs. How should they be thinking about these technologies? Of course, technology is going to change all these jobs um, and probably relatively soon and and what's actually going to change it's not like the it's not like the technology is going to do the work of the cashier it's it's that the entire experience of shopping will probably eliminate the need for a checkout like the real future of this probably looks a lot more like the amazon go stores where you just like you take what you want and you walk out and there is no standing in line and there is no paying money and there is no checking out right like the real value of technology is you can radically improve the actual experience for this and the experience for shoppers of just being able to like go into a showroom, go into a store, take what they want and walk out with it. And everything else just happens automatically and they don't have to line up and they don't have to wait. Of course, that's infinitely better. And as soon as that becomes possible, which it just did, it's going to happen. And how long it takes is just a matter of the, of the economics. I don't think it's right to argue that it shouldn't happen because this is a better experience. This is, of course, what I would want. I don't want to stand in line. I'm happy if, if the cashier is a very nice person. But I would much rather just take what I want and go without having to like wait behind other people. Of course, that savings of time, imagine like how much time is recovered in the society if no one had to wait in line. Like we could just eliminate lines, period. Like that's amazing. Of course, we should work towards that. But what should the cashiers be thinking about it? Well, um, I mean, I'm I'm always hesitant to tell people what they should be thinking about, but that's how I think about it. Uh, You know, what do you think about what you want to be doing in your life and try to work towards making that happen.
You've written that bots don't have to pretend to be human. More strongly than that, I think it's wrong when they do pretend to be human. You wrote that they just have to be fast and effortless. What did what did you mean by that? So I think, uh, as always, back to Star Wars, bots should kind of be like R2-D2. R2-D2 doesn't pretend to be human. Uh, no one talking to R2-D2 would confuse him for a human. Um, he doesn't speak human. Uh, he, you know, beeps and people kind of understand him. And he's really good at doing his job. You know, if you need to, like, get your X-Wing to Dagobah, you want R2 doing it. He's going to do that job better than any human could. And uh, C-3PO is the one that pretends to be human. And, you know, everyone kind of hates him. He's like the comic relief. And so I think like the, the AI industry has really wasted a tremendous amount of time trying to do the Turing test, trying to like get a machine to be able to pretend to be a person. And it's completely unnecessary. It's not a good experience. Like, why do I want machines to pretend to be people? It's not like I love talking to people all that much. I don't understand the use case. It's incredibly hard and it's kind of pointless. Maybe there's certain applications where it makes sense. But for the most part, like I would rather have technology that's just natural, that like I can express myself to however I want to express it and then it does its job. But for the cashiers and the personal assistants that are currently in these roles, they would probably argue that it is their personality in some cases that makes them really good at these jobs. Yeah, but the need for the jobs will disappear, right? It's not like, I'm not saying that a machine can be a better cashier than a really good human cashier. I'm saying that a cashier is a like artifact of the way that we've set up retail. And like, there's just no need at some point in the near future, like you just don't need that step. It's not that a machine is going to be doing that step. You just don't need that step. In some ways, that's similar to a personal assistant. Like, for example, if you could get to a point where you don't need to have someone coordinate your calendar because it just, like, happens automatically, then it isn't so much a question of having, like, a good personal assistant or a mediocre personal assistant. There's many amazingly good personal assistants. It's just that, like, you don't need that whole step. Shep, you've had some similar conversations with personal assistants around the country recently, right? That's right. So I talked to a number of executive assistants. One, her name's Jessica Rosenfield. She previously worked as an executive assistant at both Morgan Stanley and the financial technology company On Deck. Here's what she had to say. People who have never been in those roles don't fully understand. And as I like to say, they have this madman era of what an executive assistant is, where they just answer the phone, take an hour lunch break, and you know, send a few messages. But it's so much more than that. So I asked her. If, again, this is a conversation that was coming up or if she was thinking about maybe this job going away. It's never come up. I have some friends who have been in the industry for, you know, 30 years uh, being executive assistant. They're the career executive assistants. I don't think they would ever be threatened by anything like that. There's just so much of a human element needed in being an executive assistant. Um, You know, it's having that anticipatory understanding of, how your executive works and how the business runs and how to make them meld together, that it's just not possible for it to be replaced. I just think, you know, there are probably tools that could help make the executive assistant life a little easier, um, you know, such as scheduling. And she went on to say that travel too could could be helped by this, that she, she could see her job being changed by this technology. But again, that she felt that there was no reason to think that, you know, she should be looking to be doing something differently or that this job would go away. So Philip, if these conversations aren't happening, how do we bridge that gap? I think she's right in a, in a very important sense, right? It's unlikely that her job will actually be eliminated by technology. It's quite likely that her job will be improved by technology. A lot of the stuff that she does now will be better. But I don't think there's a you know, significant chance that like this actual person's job is going to be eliminated or 
that you know her colleagues that are executive assistants are, are going to be eliminated. Like that is very likely. That may or may not happen, but I totally see a world where everyone who's currently an executive assistant, or at least has been for you know five or ten or fifteen years, gets to like have the rest of the career that way. The flip side of that is, with one hundred percent certainty, I can say that anyone who's like being born right now is extremely unlikely to be an executive assistant. You know, when they get out of you know college or high school. So, like most things with technology. It's very easy for people to overestimate the impact in the short term, and drastically underestimate the impact in the long term. And we tend to make policy mistakes and society mistakes by like getting those two things wrong, like thinking that it's going to move much faster than it really will, like right now, and completely underestimating the impact generationally over the next you know twenty years or thirty years. Courts recently came out with an article that said over the last sixty years, automation has only replaced one U.S. occupation entirely, which is. Elevator operators. Elevator operators, yeah. That makes sense. So do you think in the next 60 years we can put cashiers and you know personal assistants on that list? Yeah, in 60 years, yeah, I do. Very much so. But that doesn't mean that people who are currently in those positions need to be worried. I mean, with cashiers, I actually think they do. But, but the other way to think about cashiers is relatively few people. I would actually be interested in getting these stats. My guess is that relatively a relatively small number of cashiers stay a cashier for you know something like twenty years. So to the extent that these are like entry level positions or intermittent positions that you maybe stay at for two to three or five years, then like yeah, cashiers aren't going away in the next five years, but in the next sixty, yeah, absolutely not not because they're going to be replaced with robot cashiers, but because the whole step of cashiering of checking out of like standing in line and like paying something like that step is just gonna is gonna disappear. And similar kind of thing, personal assistants. I think there are more and more people are actually doing that for 20 years. And, and yeah, I think for the next decade or so, there's going to be some. And the people that are really good at it are actually going to get even more valuable. But a baby being born today, like that baby's chances of being a personal assistant is, I think, exceedingly small. Right. And when we first started this conversation, you told me that when you first started investing in this technology, you saw your role as moving technology forward, investing in the technology that's going to make people more productive, make mm-hmm. people more successful. But you've evolved in your thinking, you said. And so when you think about those babies that are being born today, what role does Silicon Valley and the investors that you see every day have in terms of helping shape what those lives look like or ensuring that they don't they have places where they can work based on the skills that they have or will have. Yeah, I think that's that's really the right question. I think I've said that my role as an investor is to move the world forward, not not just the technology. Like I want the world to be more more like Star Trek, right? I want the world to be more like post scarcity. We all wear like, you know, crisp looking clothes and carry around clipboards aboard starships and write things down and you know generally happy. Like that's that's what I want. And technology has always been the driving force of that. And so I think before I would just focus, I would say, I would limit kind of the things that I would think about to like, well, let's just get the technology. And obviously somebody's got to figure out the society, but you know, it's above my pay grade. I'll just figure out the technology. And now I'm thinking, yeah, maybe this needs to be done in a holistic way. But for the next generation, not necessarily for this one, we don't necessarily need to freak out about how like actual human beings in jobs right now who have had those jobs for 20 years are going to have to like get retrained. Like that isn't what's going to happen. Like hopefully more and more of those people will continue with their jobs and their jobs will become incrementally easier because of technology. The real question is we shouldn't be setting up society assuming that their kids are going to be doing those same jobs. They, they aren't, and, 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 and they need to move forward. Well, what you're talking about is a lot what your life's work has centered on, which is making people more productive. But I wonder if there is a scenario where in the future we become too productive, where there's just too much productivity in the world and there's not enough meaning like we've been discussing maybe. Mm-hmm. Do you think about that? What does that look like to you? 
Yeah, I think, uh, you know, I think about meaning a lot. And I think you're right. I don't think productivity is the, is the you know, the ultimate goal. The ultimate goal is to have, uh, you know, meaning and, 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 and a satisfactory life. Productivity isn't what it used to be. Like productivity classically, you know, 100 years ago would be measured very specifically as just like how much output, you know, how much material output could you get out of a person for some, or, or, or out of some resources. So you like, you put in this much money in, how much money do you get out? And some of the money goes to salary and some of the money goes to equipment. But that's what productivity was, right? There's like a very classic economic measurement. And that made sense in an industrial economy where like people were making things in an assembly plant. You could like, you could measure their productivity. In a knowledge economy or even a networked economy, like what does productivity mean for employees? It's not like, it's not necessarily the number of words that you type, right? It's, it, it really comes down to quality. It comes down to like how creative are you? What is the quality of the output? And that's harder to quantify. So it already productivity, even in Evernote days, productivity didn't mean like volume of output. It, it meant at Evernote, we weren't going to try to help you do more work. We were going to help you do your best work. We were going to help you do your life's work. So it was about improving the quality of what you made so you could, you know, so it could be more valuable. You could feel better about it. And I think that progression, you know, keeps going. And that's very much what I think people should be working on now. What I'm trying to work on is how do we, how do we improve the quality of what people do? How do we improve their experiences? That's assuming that quality somehow correlates to meaning. That if you get to do something that you're proud of, that you think is quality, then that gives you meaning. That's kind of, I think that's what gives me meaning. And maybe I'm like overgeneralizing and I feel that that's true of a lot of people. And I, I hope that it's true of a lot of people because then we have a path forward. Uh, if it isn't true of a lot of people, then I don't know. Maybe everyone just needs to be on you know, VR playing fantasy sports all their lives or something. <laughs> you have written something in your bio that I really love, which is you write that you like to imagine what the world will look like in 20 years and work backwards from there. Can you take us there with you right now, 20 years from now? What do you see? What do you know? What do I know? Do I still have a job? It's a lot easier uh, to, to, uh, to, to imagine the world in 20 years than in, like, than in five years, right? Like 20 years is like pretty straightforward. You know, it's like two to three years. It's like, that's like the hard part. So do you still have a job? Hopefully um, you are doing a lot less of stuff that you don't like doing and you're doing more of the stuff that you do like doing. And in exchange for that, you have like material compensation and satisfaction that, that, that's higher than what it is right now. Like that's what I believe, right? So it's like, do you still have a job? Well, like you're spending less of your day doing the stuff that you hate, more of your day doing the stuff that you like, and you've got like the stuff that you need to li to lead a comfortable life. Uh, so yeah, probably in today's terms, that means, yeah, you have a job. Will a job, the way it's defined today, still be required for that 20 years from now? Probably, but, but I'm not sure. I'm less sure of that. In 100 years, probably not. Yeah, it probably wouldn't be like, a, like an actual job. Uh, it would be, again, more like Star Trek, right? So like, look, um, this is scientific fact, right? No one can dispute this. We all know it's been, it's been carefully established that it only takes five people to like fly the USS Enterprise and like fight Klingons and do all that stuff. Because we've seen them do it in several movies. It only takes five of them. But the normal crew, there's like 435 people. So like whenever you watch like an episode of Star Trek or a normal movie, there's like, there's like almost 500 people walking around that ship. And they all have like clipboards and they all look satisfied and they're doing stuff. Like, what do they do? They're not necessary. Well, you know, it turns out that the, the Enterprise is probably some like giant space federation, like fake work program. But great, I'll sign up for that. Those people look happy. They're going to space or doing science. I think they have jobs. Yeah. Probably don't need them because if they go away, the ship just works better, but that's okay. Well, for you, me, Chip, and our friends, Jessica and Barrett, I hope that you're right. Thanks so much <laughs> for joining us, Phil. It's been a great conversation. Thank you for having me.
So, Chip, are you ready to get on top of that Star Trek ship and hold a clipboard? Caroline, I'm worried that will be my only role, clipboard holder. The machines will be better at everything else. I just feel like if it's the future and you put me on top of that ship and you say, hold this clipboard, and I know that there are other jobs out there that are more important or have more to do with the technology at hand, I would be miserable. I would want to be the one in charge. I feel like this theme of happiness is just so central to this discussion. Yes, we can all reasonably agree that technology should continue to progress in order to make society better and efficient, but what does that really mean for workers today? It's such an important question. Salesforce CEO Mark Benioff called these people digital refugees at the World Economic Forum this year, their livelihoods pushed aside by innovation. So we need more and better ideas on what to do when these jobs go away. And it's easy to get caught up in the logistics of all of this, but we can't pass over how challenging implementation will be. Amazon was supposed to roll out its first cashier-free store in early 2017, but had to push back the launch date due to technical issues. One of the reported problems in that Amazon store is that the technology struggles when the store gets crowded, which of course is no problem for a human. The cashiers I talked to dealt with packed stores and they did it well. But again, you don't see Amazon abandoning its plans. It's just taking more time. They're still trying to open a store without cashiers. And I'm sure they will get there eventually, but how that will impact the next generation of retail workers seeking meaningful employment, not just employment, is something I think we learned in this conversation that the tech community, and anyone really, still hasn't figured out. Thank you for listening. If you like what you are hearing, please feel free to rate and review our show on iTunes. And we'd love for you to share your thoughts on the podcast and the issues we discussed here today on LinkedIn using hashtag work in progress. You can find me on LinkedIn at Caroline Fairchild and Twitter at CFair1. And to follow Chip Cutter and his journey around the country talking to today's workers, follow him on LinkedIn and Twitter as well at Chip Cutter. This week's show is produced by Florencia Iriando and David Pond. We'll see you again soon.